Now, as I said, today's Sanctity of Life Sunday, and um, I was blessed because, as you know, um, just standing for life and, and, and uh, realizing the scriptures speak to life, the Bible says you've been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in your mother's womb. The Lord says, before you were born, I knew you. Um, it, it's not a blob of tissue, it's a baby. Always will be, always has been. And in a nation where we've experienced over 50 million abortions since 1973, unrestricted, and, and uh, it, we're, we're at a place where, for the first time in a number of years, abortion is decreasing in America. Fastest growing pro-life segment in America is under 30 because they're seeing the three-dimensional color ultrasounds, and, and these, these young people are just saying, what are you trying to sell me here? I, this doesn't make sense. It's the older generation that, that, you know, we struggle with it because of what we've been fed and, and the way we stand in relation to it. Now, I know an issue this intense divides the room, no doubt, and uh, I'm, I, I'm certain that I'll get some sort of a letter or something. Um, it was fascinating that uh, in the end of September... Uh, I'd called for an end uh, uh, to defund Planned Parenthood, uh, to call your congresswoman, congressman, senator, and call for the defunding of Planned Parenthood for federal spending. And um, the the pro-life movement is now at at 52% of Americans are pro-life and 42% are pro-choice. The the scales have, have changed rapidly. Yeah. But after I had said that from the pulpit and gave you the defundtoday.com, um, I think it was that week or the week before, somebody threw an incendiary device in the Planned Parenthood. And you heard me say that does nothing to defend the unborn in our country, and I called it a cowardice act. Uh, but, but there was a, an editorial written, a letter written, not by the, it was a letter to the editor, excuse me, uh, trying to blame me for that, that somehow I was responsible because I'd call for the defunding of Planned Parenthood. And I was the one who started that issue. And uh, as you know, uh, at the end of September, the event occurred. And by October, early October, they had a suspect, which we never heard anything about because the videotapes uh, under cover of the selling of body parts by Planned Parenthood, this now became a national story, what happened in Thousand Oaks. And um, now we come to find in January, in the new year, that they have released who the person was who did it. And it was a boyfriend of one of uh, the workers at the Planned Parenthood. And had she worked at the CVS, he would have done the same thing. It had nothing to do with, with the pro-life uh, folks in, in our community. And that, this is how intense of an issue it is. Um, and, and even today as I share this message and I have folks come and, and share, um, the, the room will be divided. It will be divided. Um, and, and a lot of folks, you become, you become pro-choice because of how abortion has affected your family or you become pro-life how abortion has affected your family. It, it's a polarizing issue. But as we look at the facts and we go through these things, we make an educated decision and approach this from a biblical perspective. As Christians, we start to see clearly. And one area, as I shared from the pulpit, a member of our congregation, Vicki Miller, came up to me. And, and her husband had shared with me that this is something in 15 years of marriage he had never heard. And Vicki had, had shared with him. And it so affected her. And as she sat through the sermon, she just said, I want to make a difference. And she had expressed to me, um, Rob, you know, there's, there's, there's two victims and, and more in abortion. There's not only the child, but the, the mother. In a culture that promotes abortion, and we see it, and it's a woman's right to choose, and, and they engage in this, they become a victim through the heartache and, and the guilt and the struggle. And that's never addressed. 
And when Vicki came up and shared with me, I was so touched. And on her own, she went out and got trained through Healing Hearts Ministries to put together a Bible study. And, um, and the, the, the district uh, uh, counselor was here, and she's actually going to co-lead with Vicki to walk her through the first Bible study. And she's, she's already put it online. We haven't even advertised it yet, and we've had people sign up for it. Uh, because there needs to be healing. You know, we have to address these issues. And I, I want to I wanna welcome you up, Vicki. Come on up and let everybody see you. Come on up here. Um, tell us what we're going to see here. Okay. This, this video is... Sorry. This, this video that you're going to see is some women who went through the Healing Hearts Ministry Bible study. It's called Binding Up the Brokenhearted. It's for post-abortive women. And these women had been suffering for years over their decision that they made. And you will see that the healing that they received from Jesus was so complete and so awesome. And then afterwards, would you share with us, afterwards, share with us your story? All right, right, let's show the video. Let's lower the lights. If you're there, if you even exist, I need help. I need help. Someone introduced me to Jesus, and that was a start. It was wonderful. It was a transformation. It was a true turning point in my life where I realized that this is not all that there is, that there is an eternal hope. Because if this was it, it was it was terrible. It was just terrible. I still had anger and guilt and shame, and I knew that I needed more healing. And so I went in search of a healing, and I found Healing Hearts. I went into that Bible study, and it completely transformed my life. God said, okay, it's time. We are going to clean out all that pus. Getting into that study and realizing that um, Jesus bore all the wrath. The anger and the bitterness that I thought I'd dealt with, um, the abortion, of course, that I, I could not move past. That his blood taking away my sin, there was no more room for God's wrath. God came in and um, just cleaned house. I knew that Jesus died for my sins, and I knew I was forgiven, but I just didn't think that I could be loved. I realized how much unconditional love that God could give me if I would just take it from him. All the years of pain, of abuse, of feeling like I deserved everything that happened to me was lifted. And I understood truly for the first time, that even though I had made that choice as a Christian young lady, that he would still forgive me for that choice, that his blood still covered that choice, and he set me free. He gave me hope. He gave me a purpose. He cleaned out my wounds. I never saw God as a father who loved me to that depth that 
he didn't want me to be hurt. That when I was five years old, he was there with me. I went into that Bible study guilty, full of shame, depressed, angry, anxious, fearful of anybody finding out what I had done in the past. And Jesus met me there. He took all of it from me. And all I have now is an undying love and a gratitude that I am loved with an everlasting love that will never go away. So, 21% of all pregnancies in the United States end in abortion. There's been over 50 million abortions since 1973 with Roe v. Wade. And um, that means that every, every family in this room has been affected. And they're, they're a lot, there's a lot of hurt. You can't address the issue without addressing the hurt. And, and we long for healing in our country. Um, I want to share a couple other things that I was talking with a friend of mine who's a uh, pastor, black pastor, and, uh, and, you know, politically, he's Democrat, I'm Republican. And we talked about this issue of, of pro-life, pro-choice. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm pro-choice. I said, how, how could you be pro-choice? And we had a really sweet conversation. And, and what he didn't realize, and I told him, I said, I want you to go and Google Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood. She was a eugenicist. And um, she wanted to get rid of the lesser races, the inferior races. And, and I'd shared with him this statistic that really rocked him. I said, uh, the black population in America comprises 13% of the population. So 13% of the population in America is, is African-American. But 37% of all abortions in America are in the African-American community. Your, 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 your race is being annihilated by abortion. One in every two uh, pregnancies in the African-American community ends in, in, in abortion. Uh, black women are five times more likely to abort than white women. 69% of pregnancies among blacks are unintended, while the number is 54% among Hispanics, 40% among whites. And Planned Parenthood is the largest seller of abortion in the United States. It has 80% of its abortion clinics in minority neighborhoods. This is a vile organization, and we have one in our town. And I want you to go to defundtoday.com and call your congresswoman, congressman, senator. Tell them, I don't want... I don't want my federal money. I don't want my tax dollars going to something I find reprehensible. Um, we, we have birth clinics. We have places where people can get STT testing. We have all that. Just don't fund the abortions. And if 52% of Americans are struggling with this, don't you think that this is something we should examine? Now with that, if we don't, people hurt. And, and I wanted Vicki to come up and share her story. So just tell us a little bit about why you got into Healing Hearts and how this has touched your life. Yeah, my story actually began in 1975. I was a 19-year-old virgin who had gone to a party, got drunk, and was taken advantage of, and I found out I was pregnant. I ultimately made the wrong choice, and I chose abortion. I suffered over it for so many years, and I mean the shame and the guilt... I just can't begin to tell you. And anyone who's had an abortion, I know that you feel the same way. 
Anyway, so in 1999, Healing Hearts came to, um, came to my church, and I heard it, and I knew God wanted me to go to this Bible study. And so I went to the Bible study, and I learned about not only what my sin was like in God's eyes, which was horrible, but that Jesus, Jesus died on the cross, and he took that sin away with a true repentative heart. Your sins are forgiven fully. And, and, and I, was, I was cleansed for the first time. I asked God in 1999, do you want me to be part of this ministry? He was silent. He was silent for 15 years. <laughs> and just, just this past year, it it's came up in my heart again. And so I went and I took the training, and I'm fully certified now. And we're going to start our first Bible study. And it's for post-abortive women only. And it's a 10-week study. It's a 10-week course, and it starts on February 9th. And um, there is a $25 fee, but we do have a scholarship, so don't let that Amen. don't let that uh, detour you if you're not able to afford it. And I just, uh, you know, all I can tell you is is that if you're held in bondage over this, be free. Amen. Be free. That's Thank a good you. word. God bless you. Bless you. You're, you're so sweet. You. I'm just so proud of you. Bless you, love. I'm not quite finished, and we'll get into the study in a moment in Romans 5, and actually it deals with justification, which is exactly what Vicki was talking about, just as if I'd never sinned, how God casts our sin as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more, which is so important with this issue and with anything we're dealing with. But two things I want to cover is, one in particular, uh, I was blessed by an article that was written uh, by David Lane, actually, and, and he's quoting uh, someone who's going to be here in February, Congressman Bob McEwen, he's going to come and share and I've heard Bob share this story, and I wanted to recount it for you. Um, he says, an airline passenger turns to her seatmate and asks, what is it that you do? And he replies, I'm a minister of the gospel. And she responds enthusiastically, oh, that is wonderful. I think that spirit, spirituality is very important, and I don't care uh, which religion, because they all lead to the same place, just using different roads. My son does something with crystals out in California. It seems to have helped him. Besides, it's the same God in all religions anyway, so I think what you do is a really good thing. And then Congressman McEwen says, now she thinks she's paid the minister a compliment. However, she has just demonstrated that she doesn't have a clue what she's talking about. Then the minister turns to the other seatmate and asks, what do you do? And the man answers, I'm a member of Congress. And the minister then responds, oh, that is terrific. I so respect people in public life. It's a good thing that you do. And I don't care which political party, because right wing, left wing, they're both the same bird. Uh, I don't care which political party, because they're all good people in all parties. They're all trying to do what is best. I just vote for the best candidate. Now, the minister thinks that he has paid the congressman a compliment. However, he's just demonstrated that he hasn't a clue about how politics and government works. Can we talk about politics? This is what the article says. There's nothing good or bad about the Democrat or Republican Party, and that's true. They're simply empty holding vessels of like-minded constituents, and they're housed in that platform. And yet, this author says, I can say without hesitation that evangelicals and pro-life Catholic Christians are not housed in the Democratic Party. Democrats believe in abortion and same-sex marriage, and both are incompatible with biblical Christian behavior. Politics is about addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. No one I know believes that politicians will save America, and I am in agreement. 
That said, evangelicals must become much more sophisticated politically if we hope to reestablish a biblically-based culture where that's the ethos. This is the key. Virtue and righteousness are key components of freedom. Charles Spurgeon observed, no garment is so resplendent as that of a holy character. The problem is not a political party. The problem is the estimated 65 to 80 million evangelicals in America. Half are not registered to vote, and half of those don't vote. This is a recipe for political disaster. In a presidential election, 25% evangelicals vote. In a non-presidential election, it's 12.5%. Smug theological and political laziness, i.e. refusing to consider the consequences of leaving the public square to secularists, is no longer an option if we are to secure freedom. The pulpits must be the ones who dictate this. America's founders established a biblical-based culture for a reason. Bible scholar Peter Leihart wrote, Political authority is accountable to theologically grounded demands. But once political power emancipates itself from spiritual authority, it loses its own ability and, in short order, its legitimacy. The downward trend cannot be arrested. Individualism, then anarchy, appear as the natural consequences. So this is the solution. First, pastors must reestablish prayer in America's churches. Tonight we're going to pray. After church we're going to pray. Second, pastors must teach the whole counsel of, of God from Genesis to Revelation. Third, making disciples must become the mission of the church. The church needs to function as a church, not as an outpost of America, but as an outpost of God's kingdom. The growing crisis of American culture is related to the failure of the church to be a church. And there's good news. God's trustworthiness does not end at the point of our disobedience. We saw that with Abraham and David, right? Amen, last week? He was the Lord of history who delivered those who would obey, and he continues to be the Lord of history to deliver those who would disobey but would then turn to him in faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. God can be trusted. I'm almost finished. Indeed, the spiritual resurrection of America will fire political revolution as well as cultural renewal. In addition to the three action steps for pastoral and spiritual renewal, if evangelical and pro-life Catholic Christians will register and vote biblical principles, thus bringing biblical values and leaders to the public square, America can be spiritually resurrected. We simply need to do this. And that's, that's the idea. And I would also just add, if America, America will be saved by those who are saved. You've been set free to serve. The righteous proclaim righteousness. We're not righteous by what we've done, but because of what he's done. And it's that goodness that should lead us. And, and if we look out and we say, I don't involve myself in that, truth demands confrontation. And I know this is uncomfortable. And I know that people will, will struggle with this. And I honestly, I would like it if we could just play really cool music and say hip sermons and everybody just go home and then I can just get to heaven when the time calls and I don't want any conflict and just like a twig on the banks of a miry river, just go with the flow. But the apostle Paul said, if there be no resurrection, I'd of all men be most pitied. He, he confronted the lie with the truth and he got the daylights beaten out of him. There's no easy answer to this. But we can't stand idly by, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, complacency in the face of evil is complicit with evil itself. 
There's an abortion clinic in our town. And if we don't say anything, who will? And when they wrote the letter about me, one Christian called me. Mike Dunn. One. One person wrote a rebuttal. And my, I'm saying, write the narrative. Set the standard for folks to see that there's hope. Let them realize what Vicky is putting forward. We have answers to the heartache. I have said since I've been the pastor of this church for 15 years, if you know anyone who's having an unwanted pregnancy and, and, and doesn't know what to do, we will pay for that delivery and we will find a home for that child, no cost to them. And in 15 years, not one person's taken me up on that. We're ready. I'm blessed that we have a CPC here locally. And there's three things, and it's a community pregnancy center that doesn't provide abortion, but provides everything Planned Parenthood does without abortion. And, and they, they're funded by us. And they're struggling with funding. Churches are even pulling away because it's controversial. They don't want to fund. It's tragic. You can sponsor a baby. You can fill a bottle with change. Or you can do a diaper drive. And it's all out there in the foyer. You can check it out. And then the last thing is this. I was deeply moved and I, I woke up this morning and God gave me a number. And I, I, you've never heard me do this in 15 years from this pulpit. And I did it first service and I, I was asking the Lord, do I do it second service? I have a picture in my head of a place called the open door. I've seen it. And it's a home. A woman, a man, a family, boyfriend, girlfriend. They walk in. And when they walk in, there's freshly baked cookies. There's a fire if it's winter in the fireplace. And as they walk in, it's a home. There's a couch and TV. And, and in there, we have parenting classes. We have homemaking classes. We have a place where you can go buy clothing for your newborn. And you do it with scripts that you do after you take the classes you can go and purchase. And in addition, you, you have an ultrasound machine. And, and, and you've got foster parenting classes. And you've got a Healing Hearts ministry class. And it's a place where anyone can come. It's called the open door. And the number God gave me, $500,000. That may not be you. It may be somebody in the city and you're going to talk to them. But we would have that in our town. Because you walk into our CPC now, they're, they're doing an unbelievable work. But it's a clinic. They're trying to find clients. And I, I just want to re-educate the entire community on life. And so I want you to pray about that. See what God says to you. And I'm finished. So there. Oh, Put it up there, will you? Defund. No, no, no. Oh, oh, yeah, let me show those. Sorry, bring it back. <laughs> Strong shift in opinion in abortion, as you can see. Since 95, 56% were pro-choice, 33% pro-life. Here we are today with the under 30s seeing it. They're now 51%, it's actually 52% now, and 42% as of 2009. And there's been a 5% decrease in abortion uh, in 2011. We're watching a decline in abortion. Now watch this. It's not over. There's still 95% that need it. But look at this. Show the next. Okay, this is opinions on abortion in, in America. And um, I want to walk you through this because you can't read the writing on the sides of the graph. And so I have to find it. If it's here, and I'm getting a headache from the blood rushing to my head. Um, I don't have it here. I can do it by memory. Oh, no, here it is. Good, because it was going to be bad. 
So on the left, you see just the Gallup poll, 52% of pro, the red is pro-life, the green is pro-choice. And remember I said that, that political parties are neither moral nor immoral, they're amoral, but, but they're holding vessels for people of like mind. So the question is asked in morality, uh, by morality, is it wrong most of the time to have an abortion? You can see that it, it's, it's reaching the 60% on that second graph. And for those that believe there's no that it's not morally wrong in any way, shape, or form, that's in the 25% range. For those who look at it as a legality, should, be, should it be illegal in most cases, uh, the number drops to about 45% because Americans are compassionate. And then you see this legality on the green for pro-choice. It should be legal in most cases, not illegal. It should be legal. And so you see that hovering about the same area. But availability on the left here, uh, the fourth column, you can see that those who think it's too easy to get an abortion are, are over 50%. And those that think it's not easy enough to get an abortion are hovering above 10%. And then the next one is, uh, in the Republican Party, the, the number who are pro-life and the number who are pro-choice, it's hovering at 70%. And then, and then those who are pro-choice in the Republican Party are about a little under 30%. In the Democratic Party... Uh, those that are pro-life are hovering above 30%, and those who are pro-choice are uh, approaching 60%. And then all together in that poll, over 50% are pro-life and a little over 40% are pro-choice. But this is the interesting one. Those that believe abortion should be legal in the second trimester, and when you describe the second trimester, and he's the fully formed child, and you can hold it in your hand, and you see all the body parts there, and they, they believe abortion should be legal in the second trimester, you can see it's below 10%. And those who believe in third trimester, which is barbaric, this is almost a, a deliverable baby. It is a deliverable baby. They, they have to deliver the, the baby partially to, uh, to apply this gruesome. It, it's, it's horrific. I don't even want to go into the details. This is so barbaric, it's Dr. Mengele alike it's, it's hovering at 8%, and this is the position that the President of the United States has. And we elected him, because we didn't go to the polls. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. And, and, the, and the death of over 50 million babies screams. And really all we can ask for God now is just mercy. And, and, and activate and the, the pietism from the pulpit is, can't be had anymore. There would have never been an end of slavery. There would have never been child labor laws established had the pulpits been silent. Pulpits must awaken. I share this with you because we're coming into Romans chapter 5. And when Vicki came up and talked to you about justification, how God had healed her of all the guilt and all the shame, the Bible says he cast our sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. For Vicky, it was abortion. For you and I, it could be a number of other things. I know for me, it's a multitude of issues. And that God has cast that as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. But I, I, I think about this. We get trapped. And before we get into the reading, I want to tell you two stories, and then we'll stand in a moment for the reading of the word. You know, people say, why did God make me this way? And, and, and sin came down from from our lineage. It comes from Adam. And you think, well, you know, I didn't sin, he did, and now everything's corrupted. The human race is corrupted. It's like, it's, being, it's like being born with a hereditary disease. Well, thanks, mom and dad. But Christ comes along and says, I'm going to heal you completely of that hereditary disease. 
and I'm going to set you free. But we don't like to have to submit to God, and so we reject so great a salvation. Because salvation is free to those who would receive it. But we put ourselves in our own prison because of our unwillingness to yield to God. And the story is a 14th century story. I've been told it's true. I haven't been able to verify it, but I like it anyways. In the land now known as Belgium, there was a duke by the name of Reynold III. Now, Reynold was a very big man and was commonly called by his Latin name, Crassus, which means the fat. (laughs) Quit looking at me. Now, it seems that Reynold had a violent quarrel with his younger brother, Edward, And Edward was so angry that he led a successful revolt against his brother. But Edward did not kill Reynald. Instead, he built a room around him in the Newark Castle. And he promised his brother he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room. This would not be difficult for most, since the room had several windows and a door of normal size. And the windows and the doors were not locked or barred. The problem was Reynald's size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother so well that each day he sent a variety of delicious foods to his room. Instead of dieting his way out of prison, Reynald grew fatter. When Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. Reynald stayed in that room for ten years and was not released until after Edward died in battle. By then, his health health was so ruined that he too died within a year, a prisoner of his own appetite. Though he could have left his prison whenever he wished, his own actions kept him imprisoned. Quit blaming God. Quit blaming your parents. God has come that you'll be justified by faith and you'll have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to learn this today. Vicki wasn't in a prison. She got out through faith. And she was justified by that faith. Today, that's available to you. Now, we don't want to receive justification. We instead want to justify our own lives and take our sin and justify it. We want to contend with God and fight him. We want to tell him that I'm right and he's wrong. You won't win that battle. He's righteous, we're not. And you justify yourself by looking at Christians and saying, I'm better than Christians. And I got news for you, you probably are. I've met most of their kind. (laughs) And I've, listen, I've sat through counseling sessions with them. They're, they're just as rotten, if not more rotten, than you are. And the beauty of it is, they're not righteous because of anything they've done. They're righteous because of what Christ has done. Amen. And they fail, just like you fail. But by faith, they've been justified. Now that's changed them and given them a new hope on life. It's given them a restoration. And, the, and their struggles now become their strengths, as you've seen with Vicky. But if you want to stand and justify your own life instead of be justified by God, and you want to use me as an example and say I'm better than the pastor, you're going to stand before God and give an accounting of your life. And he's going to say, well, what's your standard? And say, Rob McCoy. And God will say, man, you picked a rotten person. Obviously, that's a low bar. But Christ is the standard. Not me and not any other Christian. And you can get to to heaven and try to justify your way in. And you're going to be standing before a righteous God. And how many times a day does a good man or woman blow it? And just because you may seem moral to us on the outside, you know what's in your heart. And the last story is this before we stand for reading. It's a, a vicious, just capricious, awful New York divorce lawyer. Anyone in here one of those? 
I will proceed. The lawyer, I'm sorry. Oh, the lawyer died and he arrived at the pearly gates. Now this is not theologically accurate in any way, shape or form. He arrived at the pearly gates. St. Peter asked him, what have you done to merit entrance into heaven as though that was necessary? And the lawyer thought for a moment and then said, a week ago, I gave a quarter to a homeless person on the street. St. Peter asked Gabriel to check this out in the record. Gabriel looks through and nods in affirmation, says this is true. St. Peter said, well, that's fine, but it's not really quite enough to get you into heaven, quarter to a homeless man. (laughs) The lawyer said, wait, 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 there's more. Three years ago, I also gave a homeless person a quarter. St. Peter nodded to Gabriel. Gabriel looked through the books, and after a moment, he nodded back, affirming, yes, it's verified, it's true. St. Peter then whispered to Gabriel, well, what do you suggest we do with this fellow? Gabriel gave the lawyer a sidelong glance and then said to St. Peter, let's give him back his 50 cents and tell him to go to hell. That's awful. If it's all about money and justifying your existence and fighting God for the entirety of your life, you will lose. Today, there's hope if you're willing to listen. If you're willing to humble yourself and realize that God has an answer. And that with all the struggles and all your failures, God is here to forgive you and justify you, just as if I'd never sinned. But it's going to be by faith. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Romans 5. If you need a Bible, these folks have one for you. Yes. Yeah, amen. Because the studies show that up to 60% of them who've been involved, 20 years later, they still suffer depression. 60% of men involved in abortion, 20 years later, still suffer depression. You're absolutely right. And can I just add that with Healing Hearts, there is a Bible study for men. It's online. It's called Wounded Warriors. There is also a study on Healing Hearts for men. I've lost control of the meeting. <laughs> I got you. Come talk to her. Anyone else? All right, Romans 5, therefore, by the way, it's there because we looked at chapter 4, we saw Abraham and David, two men that had no reason to be justified. They were liars, one was a murderer, one was an adulterer, they all had their struggles, but because they believed God, God accredited to them as righteousness. Therefore, with that understanding, with all of us being able to relate to them, therefore, here we go, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Just stop for a minute. You have to have peace with God before you can have the peace of God. Nothing separates us now because we've received by faith and he's, he's justified us. We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... In enmity, we were at war with him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not that we love God, but he first loved us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. Therefore, there's another one, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, meaning Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to many. It's a free gift to all who would receive it. Doesn't matter if you've got that, that hereditary disease of sin in your blood, God will forgive you if you receive it by faith. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, verse 16. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ, and promote life. Verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I got 11 minutes. Sit down. It's appointed once for man to die, then judgment. And we stand before a holy God to give an accounting of our life. And we humans want to justify ourselves. And, and we think that somehow we can convince God we're good. But we know deep down inside that as we stand before God and when you're in the presence of somebody who is a righteous human being, you realize, you you walk into a a room where where you're just, you know, filthy mouth and you're cussing and and you walk in and they say, so-and-so's here and you know them to be a righteous person. What do you do? You change the way you talk. You're like, oh, I'm sorry. I get that all the time. Oh, you're a pastor. I'm so sorry. I'm like, whatever. (laughs) And so we want to justify ourselves But this whole passage of Romans 5 says that therefore having been justified by faith, you're justified by faith. You see, there's three things required. Uh, Let me me correct that. There are three things that that come with justification. And, And Paul defines how we're justified. And these three things are how we're justified. The first thing that we find is that we're justified, real simply, we saw this at the beginning, we're justified by faith. We're justified by faith. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I, I like the, the story of, of the man who was walking uh, on the edge of a cliff. His name was Jack, and he was getting too close to the edge, and he slipped, and he began to fall, and he's falling to his death down this, this massive cliff at the bottom of the canyon. He grabs, in desperation, a branch, and the branch is barely holding on. He grabs, he's holding it. There's no footing. He's just dangling from this branch. It's getting increasingly weaker. 
And he's yelling and screaming, help, help, help. And nobody's answering and the sun goes down and he's, he's getting tired and he's at the edge of exhaustion. And he just says, help, help, help. Is anyone there? Help. And he hears a voice as he yelled for a long time, Jack, Jack, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you. I can hear you. And it's dark. He says, I, I, I'm down here. Can you see me? Jack, yes, I see you. Are you all right? Yes, but, but who are you? Where are you? And the voice says, I'm the Lord, Jack. I'm the Lord. I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean God? Yes, that's me, Jack. God, please help me. I promise. If you get me down from here, I'll stop sinning. I'll be a really good person. I'll serve you the rest of my life. I swear to God. I, I swear to you. <laughs> Easy on the promises, Jack. Let's get you off from there. And then we can talk. Now, here's what I want you to do. Now, listen carefully. I'll do anything, Lord. Just tell me what to do. Okay, okay, I'll do whatever you say. The Lord says, okay, Jack, I want you to let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch and just trust me. Let go? There was a long silence. Finally, Jack yelled, help. Is there anyone else up there? Help. (laughs) Our justification is still a matter of faith. You have to take God at his word. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must first believe that he is. And he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. There's the great law of the universe. There is a God and you are not him. And you must yield and surrender and trust. Faith is how we become justified before God. And, And it begins and ends with faith. We have to trust him. I mean, you look at a starry night, and, and to me, it's, it's, it's beyond imaginable that, that people would doubt the existence of God. I believe it takes more faith to, to be an atheist. You think that we've been created from some cosmic accident, and primordial soup, and you look at the intricacies of, of a single cell, and it, and, it, and it screams of a designer and a creator. You watch seasons come and go, and we're, we're being you know, in, in the expanse of the universe and, and, and all of this. And you can guide yourself by the night sky and it's ordered. You know where the North Star is. You follow the Big Dipper. I know where it is from my house. All these things that order in the design and, and you, you say it's by, by chance and, and then the numbers don't add up. And, and, and you, you say, well, I've never seen God. I don't believe he exists. I've never seen the builder or the designer of this building, but I know he exists because it screams of order and screams of a designer. Yet we reject God and we don't want because we love our sin more than we love God. We want to justify ourselves. And God says, you can either try to do it on your own and stand before me or my son will justify you by his blood shed for the massive amount of your sins. It's, it's, It's God's word that causes us to confess our faith in Christ and to trust him as our savior. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's faith in the Lord and his word that leads you to daily prayer, cause you to surrender your life. It's faith in the Lord that leads you to live for him the best you can, to transform your struggles into a ministry, to watch God use your past together for good. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. He turns it into a treasure. Romans 8, 1 says, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He uses your past and all things, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good with those who love him. We're gonna see this in, in the entirety of the book of Romans. This is the beauty of faith and, and, and justification before God. And as you age, I gotta tell you, I'm 51, I'm on the downside of this hill. You start to, 
to see your faith mean so much to you. When you're young, you struggle with it. But as you near death, your faith increases, it seems. At least for me, it does. I find prayer so much more important. I realize that worrying doesn't amount to anything or accomplish anything. When you have peace with God, then you have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding in the midst of a trial. You're able to say, you know, God, you've got a problem on your hands. I'm going to go to bed. Will you take care of it? And you rest. I don't know how to describe it. With us are, are Aaron and Jen. Diagnosed with geoblastoma, brain, you know, brain cancer. No known cure. And they have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Scott Berman, bodied riddled with cancer. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Yeah, they have peace with God. That's why they have the peace of God. In a fallen world, everything starts to make sense. And you see how God uses it together for good. You know, I also find, too, that as, as I have this justification through faith and I rest in the Lord, I come to a place where I'm, I'm ready to go home. Death doesn't frighten me. You know, when, when anyone threatens me, I'm like, what are you pointing at, you know, threaten me, what, with heaven? I, I, it, I look forward to it, but I stay because there's work to be done. And I even look at my body and, and, and it, you know, metabolism slows down. You start to gain weight. I'm thinking, I need to stay in shape for the sake of my grandson and my grandkids to come and my kids to help navigate them through this because God's given me wisdom. I want to serve him. I want to be home with the Lord, but I want to serve him. And this is what God does through this, this justification through faith. The other thing that we see that, that Paul defines how we're justified is we're justified at the right time. We're justified at the right time. Uh, in our last service was Scott Waugh. He's the producer of uh, Act of Valor. And I had lunch with him this week, and he was telling me about the n- next movie he's working on. And it was ended up being a friend of his that he knew playing hockey growing up as a kid who ended up getting drafted by one of the NHL hockey teams, and, and I think it was the Rangers. And he, he was too impatient to wait, and so he took a contract with the Olympic team in France because he was French. And, and he ended up getting addicted to crystal meth, and, and his whole life just spiraled out. And he, he was bottoming out, and, and here he was, I think up on Mammoth Mountain in a blizzard, a long, big snowstorm back in 04, I think it was. And he got lost on the backside of the mountain, and he had his bag of crystal meth, and he'd been snowboarding, and he, he's realizing he's dying. And he was lost for eight days. And it's a whole story. He ended up losing his legs because of, of frostbite. But it came to a place where he had this bag of crystal meth. And you can't eat frozen snow because it lowers your body temperature and you dehydrate. And he knew he needed to melt it, but he had this bag that he could use, but it was his crystal meth. And he realized, if I don't get rid of this. And he looked at that bag and he says, everything in this bag has led me to this place. And it was just the right time. He poured that out and he put it in, sealed it up, started to melt the water or the ice and he had to get up to the top of the mountain to get the last that was on his iPod to, to have him calculate a location and the helicopter saved him at the last minute. He had less than 2% remaining battery life. It's an amazing story. And today he's got prosthetics. He's teaching hockey. He loves the Lord. He's got a family. He's been crystal meth free. God has done an amazing work in his life. But at the right time, some of us are hard-headed I mean, we are serious. I am. I'm experiential. I remember when Natasha moved down to Oxnard. I'm like, honey, people spend their life trying to get out of Oxnard. You're moving into it. (laughs) And I told her, I said, honey, I said, you only owe me one thing. We adopted her when she was 12. She was 21 when she moved. I said, you only owe me one thing. Actually, she was 20 when she moved down. She said, what's that, dad? I said, if you find anything better than Jesus out there, you got to come tell me. She said, dad, I just got to, I just got to do it. I said, okay. And it was the right time God took a hold of her. 
And, and it was a circumstance that was tragic. And God got a hold of her heart and absolute transformation brought her to the end of herself. And it's at the end of ourself is where we, we find the Lord. And just the right time. You see, it's in verse 6. It says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Perfect time. Perfect time. And God sends the right person at the right time. He sent Jesus. Galatians says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as sons and daughters. At just the right time, God sent his son, the right person at the right time. My son Daniel uh, has a position on the football team, a long snapper for punters and field goal kickers, long snapper. Very unique calling. He wants to get a scholarship with it. He's joined the Rubio long snapping camp. He's in Las Vegas right now going through the competition uh, to try to get a scholarship. And I remember when he first came to me, he said, Dad, I want to play football. I said, I was a water polo player, swimmer. I don't know anything about football, son. You're on your own. And then he said, you want to do long snapping. He said, so he's out there practicing. I don't even know what to tell him. And Michelle's, you know, I'll, I'll, and I'm busy, son. I don't know if I, and I'll, I'll help you, son. And snaps the ball. And she goes over and gets it, picks it up, throws it back. Just, so, oh, let's go get that ball. Just pick that up and just throw that back. Just, you're doing great. Just, oh, that's awesome. You know, and, you know. And we were both clueless. And, and we had this snapping camp coming, and we didn't know what to do. And along comes a guy named James, who was a long snapper for uh, uh, Boise State, and snapped in high school. Boom. Right person, right time. One other thing about this idea of justified at the right time, and this idea of the right person at the right time, just to give you an illustration, and, and this ties in, and I'll be brief with it, because we're limited in time, but just the right person at the right time, 1963, my mom wasn't a Christian, neither was my dad. My mom had had two abortions. She had three kids, two abortions. They weren't going to have any more kids. She found out she was pregnant with me. She was in San Diego at the time, not in Japan where it was legal. And so she confided in the commanding officer's wife who was childless, and my mother assumed she was childless to further her husband's career, the admiral's wife. And her name was Lois Early, Rear Admiral Early's wife, and, and said, Lois, where would one obtain an abortion in 63 in San Diego? And she said, Louise, let me get back to you. Let me get back to you. Well, unbeknownst to my mother, she got together with her best friend, which was the other Admiral's wife, Med Fowler, and the two of them, without my mother's permission, put on a baby shower and saved my life. Right person at the right time. I got to lead uh, Lois to the Lord. She was my godmother. I got to lead Med to the Lord. Not only was she my God, not only was she Lois's friend, but she also happened to be my wife Michelle's grandmother. You talk about the right person at the right time. Somebody stepping in and saving a life. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. I told that story as I'm looking through the sliding door on my back patio and I'm sitting with somebody that I'm sharing this idea of, of, of faith and the right person, the right time, justified in the right time, justified by faith. And I'm looking through this, the sliding door at my, my wife who's just beautiful and radiant. And I'm, I'm looking at my girls singing harmony of, of praise songs and I'm watching my son Daniel dance and I'm watching Michael be Michael and, and the, the house is just filled with joy and I'm looking and I'm saying, 
That is grace. I don't deserve this. Not only did God forgive the mass of my sin, but he gave me this in place of it. And it all started with one woman who said babies aren't to be aborted. You put on baby showers and you provide for them and you care. That is justified at the right time. That's a picture of what God does. It's wonderful when someone else steps in and touches your life. And this is what God did for us. We may not always think his timing's perfect. But often when we look back, we can see where he was working and when he stepped in. Natasha today knows exactly when that was. So do I in my own life. And then I just close with this. The last thing that defines how we're justified is we're justified by his blood. Verse 9 through 11 in the passage says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. We're justified by his blood. We're justified by his blood. The law requires, and God says this in Hebrews 9.22, that blood must be shed for the remission, forgiveness of sin. It's the life force of the human body. It's capital punishment. The wages of sin is death. Blood must be shed. Hebrews says, He did not enter by the means of blood and goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. It was the sinless blood of God that was shed for the remission of our sins. And if you contrast that with this guy, and I read about him, his name is Joe Kirkowski. He's an American blood donor champion. And uh, the American Association of Blood Banks honored him. He was 62 years old when they honored him. He was a retired security guard in Chicago. But what had happened is in, he had lost his arm when he was a, a young child in an accident when he was six years old. And he was rejected for military service and couldn't serve in World War II. And since then, since that accident and that rejection in the military, he decided to donate blood. And he's donated in his lifetime, up until the writing of the story, 31 gallons of blood. The human body contains 10 or 12 pints of blood. But Joe donated 20 times more than that amount. Giving blood makes you feel like contributing to life itself, he said. There's no more precious gift than life. Money can't buy the joy of giving blood to help someone who needs it, Joe said. Now, he may have given more blood than most people, but Jesus gave the best blood. First Peter 1 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake and mine. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, blood must be shed for the remission of sins. Christ is its Savior. So, we're saved in justification, this idea that we're justified through faith. We're justified at the right time, and we're justified by blood. And all of that is in the passage that we read. And then I just close with this, and I love this story. And I remember Don McClure telling it, and I, I looked it up and stole it. Uh, it seems that there was, there was a man in England who put his Rolls Royce on a boat. It was brand new Rolls Royce on a boat, and went across the channel to the continent of Europe and began his holiday trip driving in his brand new Rolls Royce. 
And when he was driving around Europe, something happened to the motor of his car. He cabled the Rolls-Royce people back in England and asked, I'm having trouble with my car. What do you suggest I do? Well, the Rolls-Royce people flew a mechanic over the channel. The mechanic repaired the car and flew back to England and left the man to continue with his holiday. And as you can imagine, the, the fellow was wondering, how much is this going to cost me? So when he got back to England, he wrote the people a letter and asked how much he owed them. He received a letter from the office of Rolls-Royce that read, Dear Sir, there's no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a (laughs) Rolls-Royce. This is what we have in Christ. This is what we have in Christ. In Christ, it is as if we've never done anything wrong and nothing's ever been broken. It's called justification. We're justified by faith. We're justified at the right time. And we're justified by his blood. And it's all because of Jesus. And we've been saved to serve. He's given us life that we might impart life. He hasn't given us life that we may be selfish. As the Apostle Paul said, if there be no resurrection, I'd be of all men most pitied. Everywhere he went, he confronted evil and he confronted lies with the truth. And he was beaten, scorned, ridiculed. But he stood because he knew that the life he had received he wanted to impart. And I'm not going to sit idly by even if the church preaches down to five people. I'm not going to sit idly by while the life I've been given is hindered from being given to the over 50 million children that have been aborted. I don't want any more in my lifetime. We are a nation of life. Inalienable rights among those being life. Liberty and happiness are scarce little value without life. We are a nation of life. We have life. Because Christ justified us. Let us do the same. Let us spend our life honoring him by protecting the unborn. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word and we thank you for this day. I pray encouragement upon Vicki and the folks that work and volunteer at the CPC. Those who tirelessly work on defense and in defense of the unborn in our community. Lord, awaken your people that we who have so freely received would freely give. I pray, God, you pour your spirit upon us and give us strength. God, we rejoice that we've been justified by faith at the right time and through your blood. And we give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.